are listening to a message from Bethany First Church of the Nazarene, online at bethanynaz.org. So, I've told you before, we have two daughters. Morgan is 25, lives in Oklahoma City, dates a nice guy named Brian. Brittany is 30, lives in Cincinnati, married to a guy named Tim, and they have a little girl whose name is Sadie, our only granddaughter. Sadie is now... Four and a half years old. Normally I would not do this. Uh, in fact, I hardly ever do this. But because many of you ask me often, can you please show us a picture of Sadie? Um, it's just almost daily that I get that question. I've decided to bring a picture. And so here's Sadie. Just a uh, Christmas snapshot of her. I love the next one. She looks all grown up in this one. Um, Kind of got the pose going on there. I'm nuts about her, of course. So three months ago, Sadie came to our house to visit. It's like the best days of my life when Sadie's with me. And, and, and Sadie and I were playing, and Annette was playing, and that's better at playing than I am. And, and so we said, what do you want to do now? And Sadie says, I want to watch a movie. What movie do you want to watch? She told us. And so we get the movie um, coming on the television and I say to Sadie, hey, Sadie, why don't you sit with me and we'll watch the movie together? I'm thinking, cuddle up, you know. And Sadie's sensitive. She doesn't want to hurt your feelings. But she comes over and she's kind of, you know, with her hands and she says, but Ricky, um, I, don't want to just, I don't want to just watch it. I want to be in it. I want to stand over there. And I said, well, no, stand over there. I, I understand. That's fine. I'll sit here. You you'd stand over there. And so as the movie comes on, I begin to get it. I begin to understand it because in this animated movie, Sadie knows almost every line and she says them with the characters. And when they dance, she knows all the dance moves. And when they get in the boat, she jumps up on the ottoman and she begins to row the boat. And she's singing every song. I mean, she actually identifies and becomes one of the characters in the movie. I think I understand that. I shared with you that we'd be starting a series today called The Magnificent Story by James Bryan Smith. He is one of my favorite, favorite authors. And James Bryan Smith says in this book, and I'll quote him several times today because I really want you to get into it, we were made not just to enjoy stories, but to enter them. We all want to be part of a great story. In fact, we all want to be part of a magnificent story. And so Smith says, we weren't made just to enjoy a story, but we were made to enter the story. And Sadie is saying, you don't get it, Ricky. I don't want to just, I don't want to just hear the story. I want to be part of the story. A couple of three, four years ago, I was with a team of people from this church. We were out in Arizona. We were trying to support the Native American Partnership. And I woke up one morning and everybody said, hey, today we're going to see the Grand Canyon. We were only an hour away. I never thought much about seeing the Grand Canyon. I'd seen pictures. I assumed that I would love to go, but I'd never made plans to go. It wasn't like a high priority for me, but I'm only an hour away and everybody wants to go. And I'm like, absolutely, let's go. Why wouldn't you go see the Grand Canyon? But I didn't have a lot of energy for it until I stood for the first time in my life at the rim of the canyon and I saw a picture that looks like this. 
And I remember when I stood there and I looked out over the vastness of it, I remember saying to the people with me, no wonder they call it grand. I mean, I was impressed. And, and I looked and I looked and I looked and we went to other parts of the canyon and we looked. And, and I came home and I felt like I had become a part of this story. Up until this point, I'd only seen pictures. But now I came back telling people stories about the Grand Canyon. And I felt like in some ways I had become part of the story. And it took on a whole new meaning to me. So Smith says, did you know there is a magnificent story? There's a story that's like better than any other story that's ever been told. And the magnificent story is the story of God. And He's not inviting you just to look at pictures or to hear about it. But God is inviting all of us to come in and become a part of His story. The story of God is the most important thing that is happening on this earth. And God is asking you and me and everybody else, you should become part of my story. You don't have to just watch it from a distance. You don't have to just look at pictures. I'm inviting you to participate in my story. Now, here's what's puzzling to me. We humans, man, we're, we're odd ducks sometimes. Because instead of realizing that God invites us to be a part of His story, we sometimes think what we're doing is pretty cool and we want God to become part of our story. <laughs> like, I've got something neat going on too. And we settle for so much less. So what I want to do is take you to the Word of God, to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's kind of a famous passage. Would you agree? It's the love passage. You hear it a lot at weddings, other places. But in it, I think we find elements that make a story magnificent. And so as I read through it, I want you to look for those elements, and we'll talk about them as we move through the sermon this morning. So here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. If, if I could speak all the languages of earth, and, and for that matter, all the languages of angels, but I didn't love others, then I would only be like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Or he says, let's take another example. If I had the gift of prophecy, and if I understood, I love these words, all of God's secret plans, and I possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move a mountain, I mean, that's a lot of faith, right? But if I didn't love others, then I would be nothing. And he goes on, if I gave everything I have to the poor and I even sacrificed my body, what if I became a martyr and I could boast about it? But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. And then he talks about what love is. He says love is patient and it's kind and it's not jealous and it's not boastful. It's not proud. It's not rude. It does not demand its own way. It's not irritable. It keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up. It never loses faith. Love is always hopeful. And love endures through every circumstance. Now, in contrast, speaking of prophecy and speaking in unknown languages and special knowledge will become useless. But, but love, no, 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 it, it lasts forever. Now, our knowledge is partial, and it's incomplete. 
And even the gift of prophecy reveals only a part of this whole picture. But when the time of perfection comes, these partial things will become useless. And then he goes into these words. When I was a child, I spoke and I thought. And I reasoned as a child. But when I grew up, I put away childish things. So now we see things imperfectly like puzzling reflections in a mirror. You ever try to read a word in a mirror? It's all backwards. You can't. But then we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know is now partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely, just as God now knows me completely. And these things will last forever. Faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. Let me, let me take a minute or two and talk to you about Romans 13. It does not stand in isolation. It is written uh, after chapter 12, and it is written before chapter 14. And in chapters 12, 13, and 14, there's a greater conversation going on here. Now look at you guys. You got up this morning, you came to church. You got all dressed up, and here you are, and you know, you've, you've been worshiping together. And I love the worship this morning, didn't you? It's good to be together. Many of you were in a class together before this. And so here you are. You've made a decision to come and worship together. Now that's the issue that was going on with the church at Corinth. They had issues about coming to worship together, and they had some disagreements going on. And there was some division about worshiping together. And then in chapter 14, it's about spiritual gifts. And some people were so proud of their spiritual gifts that they were even saying stuff like, Hey, Timmy, my spiritual gift is a little shinier than yours. I'm a little more proud of my gift than yours. I'm sure glad I have my gifts and not your gifts. And so... Paul really says, think with me about love. And he, and he breaks it down into three sections. The first section, he basically says, if you don't love, then nothing else matters. Well, well wait, 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 wait. What, but, but what if I could like speak in all kinds of tongues and languages? And he says, yeah, without love, that doesn't amount to anything. Well, what if I have a lot of, you know, great spiritual gifts? I mean, shiny ones. You know, the ones that are up front being used. Yeah, it doesn't matter if you don't have love. Well, but what if I, what if I gave away everything to the poor and, uh, and I even became a martyr? Yeah, that wouldn't amount to anything without love. Because without love, nothing else matters. And then he says, you know, this is what love is. And we'll talk about that more in the body of the sermon. And then he kind of concludes that love is the way of God's kingdom. The kingdom of God is the language of love. We love one another. Now, let me summarize this up by saying simply this. Paul believed that when followers of Jesus loved as Jesus loved, that they would resist the temptation to be divisive on issues like worship. So I'm not going to linger here a long time. But, but i got to say to you that we're, we're terribly divided as a society. It's it's. It's bad. It's worse than I ever remember it being. And in some ways, we get divided within the church. And, and we say things. And we express our opinions without any regard for, will this be divisive? Will this be offensive to my Christian brothers and sisters? 
And, and maybe I shouldn't say it, or maybe I shouldn't post it. I mean, maybe we should drive out to cemeteries and just walk around the cemeteries and think about, okay, one day I will leave this world, and, and when I look back, you know, on my life, should I have said this, should I have posted it, or should I have just maybe kept my mouth shut? I mean, I mean, it's one thing to say, no, I believe in something strongly, and that's a hill I would die on. Well, I understand, there are those moments... But there are other times when it's just political rhetoric that's been here for years and it will be here for years after we're gone. And people just be fighting like crazy over things. And, and I think as followers of Jesus, we have to ask ourselves the questions, you know, how important is this that I say this in this moment? And how divisive could it be? And maybe it's okay to believe something and just not say it out loud. And Paul believed that when people loved as Jesus loved, they would resist division, the temptation to be divided, and they would quit bragging about, my gift is shinier than yours. And they would come together. Okay, so let me, let me move from there. That sermon's over and we'll keep going, okay? I read a story uh, recently that I loved about a man whose name is Lawrence. He, uh, he sings in the choir of the famous... Brooklyn Tabernacle, where Jim Simbla is the pastor of the church in Brooklyn, New York. And, and Lawrence tells his story. He says, my mother and father learned they were expecting a baby, but when my mother was nine months pregnant, my father walked out the door, left before I was born. And so he said, when I was born, uh, there wasn't a loving father standing by encouraging my mother on. And uh, and when I came into this world, there wasn't a very proud dad there to welcome me into the world. I experienced none of that. He said, um, so my mother is a single mother. And, and I realized that there are single mothers who are heroes, who make the sacrifice and take the job on by themselves and do a good job. But my mother is not a hero by any means. Because he said, when I was two months old, my mother took me to Antigua, an island in the West Indies, and just dropped me off at my grandmother's door. And my grandmother raised me. I didn't really understand or care that my mother, which was my grandmother, was a lot older than everybody else's mother. It didn't matter to me. What I felt was love, and I loved her. And I had friends, and I was taken good care of. And I had a really good life until I was seven years old. And at seven everything changed. My mother showed up and just snatched me up and took me to New York with her. My whole life that I knew and understood was just over. The problem with going to New York and living with my mother is that by the time I was seven, I began to take on certain physical features and I looked a lot like my father. And I reminded her of my father, which maybe was one of the reasons she began to hate me. The verbal abuse was immediate. You will never amount to anything. You are no good, Lawrence. You're worthless. You're sorry, and you'll be just like your father. But he said the physical abuse was more than I could have imagined was standing as a seven-year-old child. And what I never understood is that my mother's extended family knew it, and sometimes they witnessed it. I remember them saying to her on more than one occasion, if you don't stop, you're going to kill him. But she didn't stop. And nobody reported it. 
And I lived in that physical abuse and that verbal abuse all those years. When I entered high school, my mother just moved us to Miami. As I look back over my life, he said, in Antigua, someone loved me, and I had friends, but in New York, they made fun of my accent, and I was bullied, and I had no one to love me. I moved to Miami again, and there's nobody to love me in my life. He said, I was tall. The coaches started to notice me, recruited me to play basketball. I had a gift. Who knew? I was good. By my senior year, I was the most valuable player on my team, and I was All-American, which meant college scholarships were coming at me. My mother had never seen me play basketball and could have cared less that I played basketball. And so it was a coach who met with me and met with recruiters, and we decided on which college I would attend. He said, my life was changing. I began to believe a different story. Maybe my mother is not right. Maybe I'm not worthless. Maybe I'm not useless. Maybe I'm not no good for anything. Maybe I'm not sorry. Maybe I'm not like my father after all. My life was taking a different trajectory. But he said my sophomore year, I was injured. It was a leg injury. It ended my basketball career. And it also ended the scholarships. I called my mother and she said, don't come to Miami, whatever you do. I'm married. There's not a place for you here. And so he said, I decided to move back to New York. And in New York, I enrolled in school to become a pilot. I'd saved some money. I've been very frugal. I've been very careful. And so I was able to get into school. I got a job washing dishes at a Denny's restaurant. I had a roommate. We shared a small apartment together, he and I. My job at Denny's ran out. Work had slowed down. They said they were sure they would get me back to work there someday, but right now they just didn't have enough work. I slept wherever I could because my roommate finally said, you got to go. I got to get somebody in that can pay rent. I slept on couches of friends, and finally I'd worn out my welcome with everyone I knew. And I remember the day I found a mattress in a dumpster between two apartment buildings and I pulled it out and I laid it on the ground by the dumpster. And that became my home for a while. He said, when you're homeless, people assume it's drugs or alcohol. For me, it was neither. I just had no body. He said, when you're homeless, you can't get clean. It's hard to get a job when you can't get clean. When you're homeless, you never have enough food. And so you're always a bit lightheaded. You kind of live your life half dizzy. When you're half dizzy and lightheaded, you don't seem to make as many good, sound, rational decisions. The flies worried me to death during the day and the mosquitoes ate me alive at night. You could never get away from the weather. You were always out there in it. My favorite part of the day was when I went to sleep. Because when I went to sleep, I could escape my situation. Lawrence said, I would sell my blood twice a week in order to buy food. But I remember the day that I sold my blood and I didn't buy any food. Instead, I bought sleeping pills, enough that I believed would end my life. I decided this time when I go to sleep, I'll not wake up again 
this whole miserable life of mine will finally be over. And he said, I'm laying there on that mattress with a bottle of water in my hand and and the pills in my other hand. And he said, laying there on the mattress between these two apartment buildings, you got used to the blaring noise of a radio or a television through an open window. I'm asking myself, how did my life get to this point? How how could it have turned out so bad? I, I felt like at one point there was hope. How, how could I possibly be where I am today? And he said, there only seemed to be one answer to my question. And it was the answer that my mother had given me a thousand times. It's because, Lawrence, you're no good. You're worthless. You're sorry. You won't amount to anything. You're just like your father. I heard a television. It was a preacher. I was sure of it. He was saying that God loved me. He was actually saying that God loved me and had a plan for my life. He said, God loved me so much that He gave His Son Jesus to die on a cross for me so that I could be forgiven of my sin and so that I could get a new start in my life. And He said, as I listened to the preacher, I began to believe Him. And, and somehow things got lighter rather than heavier in that moment with sleeping pills in one hand and a bottle of water in the other laying on this mattress. And he said, I began to cry, just uncontrollably cry. Tears, just tears. And the preacher kept saying, you've got to accept Jesus. You've got to accept Jesus. Accept Jesus into your life. And Lawrence said, I just began to say out loud, Jesus, I accept you. I accept you. I don't even know what it means to accept you, but I accept you. If that's what i got to do, then I accept you. And he said, when I look back on it, I can't believe that a person who was in a situation as terrible as my situation could feel so much joy. But that's what I felt. And it was finally just tears of joy and tears of elation and tears of excitement that my life maybe really would change. I didn't take the pills. And he said, my life did change. It was only a day or so until that job at Denny's did come back open and I went back to washing dishes three nights a week and finally it was a full-time job and I got another job at a motel across the street from the Denny's where I was doing kind of handyman fix-it work and changing light bulbs and stuff like that. And I got back into flight school and I got back into an apartment and I became a part of the Brooklyn Tabernacle Church. Wow, you took a long time to tell that story. You got a reason for it? I do. Because James Bryan Smith says something that I think that you must lean in and you must hear. You must understand before you leave the room today. And here's what he says. There are stories that are shaping and running our lives. We all have stories that are shaping and running our lives. And so think with me for a few minutes about Lawrence, okay? What is the story that was shaping and running his life? Lawrence, you're no good. You're worthless. You will never amount to anything. You are sorry You are like your father. And that story became a story of power in his life and was shaping his life. And finally one day he just said, I guess that's right. I will never be worth anything. 
But then one day, laying on a mattress with sleeping pills in his hand, he heard another story. The magnificent story. And the story that he heard was, God loves you, Lawrence. God loves you more than you will ever comprehend. He loves you so much that he gave his only son, Jesus, to down a cross for you. And you can have a whole new start. It's like your life can begin all over again. And when that story begins to shape his life, everything changes. See, I, th- I, think, I think you and I have to do some real good introspective stuff this morning. Because what is the story that's shaping your life? And I think now becomes paramount when you answer questions like, what is it do I believe about God? And what do I believe about Jesus? And what do I believe about the gospel? You see, when a child is told that they will never amount to anything, it doesn't have to be true to have power over their lives. They just have to believe it. When a child is told they will never amount to anything, the story does not have to be true in order to have power over that person's life. They just have to believe it's true. And so this morning, I think that you and I have to ask the question, what is the story we believe? Smith would say, The most important thing is that we start living by the right story. Now, now this this almost kind of brings us to another point of kind of stopping or pausing or being at a point of struggle because it's always, well, how do I know what the right story is? How do you know the truth? We've all got these questions we want answered. Not making this up. I was in, uh, where was I? I was in... Key West, Florida, the other day. And I'm walking down the street with friends, and we stop at a stoplight for the light to change so we can walk across. I'm not making this up. A chicken walks right across the road, okay? And my friend Sam said, ask him why he did it. Ask him why. You know, this is our opportunity. We've all got, like, questions that we want answered, right? Why did the chicken cross the road? We never ask him How do I know what the right story is? Smith would say, um, to give any story power over your life, it must come under three questions. You ready? You're going to love this. If a story is going to have power to shape your life, you've got to ask three questions of that story. And here's what the questions are. Is the story beautiful? Is the story good? And is the story true? So let's talk about Lawrence's story. Lawrence, you'll never amount to anything. You're sorry. You're no account. You'll always be like your dad. Is that a a beautiful story? Oh, could we get a little participation in the room? Is that a good story? Is it a true story? Let's go with another story. God loves you, Lawrence, more than you'll ever comprehend. Jesus died on a cross for you. He wants you to have a whole new and better life.
Is that a beautiful story? Is it a good story? Is it true? Yeah. So let's talk about beauty. Aquinas said, that which, when seen, pleases. Now, I've seen a lot of beautiful things in my life, but I've never needed anybody to tell me it was beautiful. Right? I, I, I know that marriage is God's plan because Annette and I keep getting better looking to each other as the years go on. You know, I, I'm, I'm telling you guys, I was in a car the other day with friends. She was coming out of a hotel to get in the car, and I just went, oh, my goodness, look to your right. You know? I mean, when seen, pleases. You know? A rose. Nobody ever had to tell me, Rick, a rose is beautiful. I knew it. Let's look at uh, goodness. That which works for the benefit of another. I love this. Is it good? Does it benefit someone? And truth is that which is aligned with reality. You remember what Jesus said about truth? Right here. Jesus said, I am the truth. So when we go back to 1 Corinthians, right? Uh, what we find in 1 Corinthians is kind of this list tucked in this story of Paul trying to help people to love one another more deeply and be careful about creating division within the body and quit being so prideful. And he creates a list of what is good, beautiful, and true. And he says, love, that's good and beautiful and true. And patience and kindness and faith and hope and endurance. But he also gives us a list of what is not beautiful and good and true. Jealousy and boastfulness and pride and rudeness and arrogance. So here's your question. Is the story that is shaping my life today, is it good? Is it beautiful? And is it true? Many of us have been greatly shaped and influenced by a story that is neither good or beautiful or true. And the narrative has to be corrected. Last week I was at an event called Mission 19, three to 4,000 pastors from across the USA and Canada. We're in Kansas City together. We came together for many services and workshops we heard some really, really good preaching and some that wasn't so good. You've been to those events. You know how they go. But overall, it was good. But every time, every time, every time we came together, we were challenged. We were challenged in this regard. Unleash the gospel. Tell people about Jesus. Live with open arms. And while they said, yes, it's good to make room and time for people in your life and create real friendships, there's also a time to verbally proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. At some point, you've got to tell some people about Jesus. 
James Bryan Smith says, the most magnificent story of God is the most important thing happening on this earth. And he moves from this to say, and God is inviting everybody to participate in his story. And you and I know because of Jesus' call to us in the Great Commission that we are to be the ones who take the story to the world. And I think the question comes down for me and for you is do I really believe that God can change a person's life? Do you believe God can actually transform a person's heart? Do you believe in the story of Lawrence? And do you believe God can do it for many, many, many others? Do you really believe it's a matter of life or death? So I don't know if you've had time to really think on it or not. And I hope you buy the book and you kind of meet me here for these next several weeks as we talk about some of his themes and ideas that will shape and inspire the sermons. But I want to be a part of a great story. A magnificent story. And, and I look around at people in my world today. People who don't know Jesus. They want to participate in a great story. And some of them have some pretty tough stories. But here's the great news. God wants to redeem every story. He wants to redeem your story. You want to stand with me? The band's going to come up. We're just going to sing about a loving God. We're going to affirm the narrative of the Scripture that God is good and that He loves us and He gave His Son Jesus so that we could have a new and better life. And so you, you've been around enough, maybe many of you, to know that it's kind of like the altar is always an open place for you to come. If you want to pray for any reason, you can come and pray. And this morning, if you're saying, Rick, I, I want to participate in the magnificent story, the story of God, I want, I want God in my life, then you can come. And accept the gift that he offers of forgiveness. Which will separate anything that separates you from God. It will get rid of it. And you can be free to know him. And share in his story. Because of the sacrifice of Jesus. Let's see. You have been listening to a message from Bethany First Church of the Nazarene. Visit us online at BethanyNaz.org.